Hello, and welcome back to another episode of A Pinch of Prevention. This podcast is associated with Evansville's very own Prevention Youth Council, and our mission is to uplift the voices of teens by providing us with the opportunity to advocate for our communities and ourselves. I'm Katherine Titzer, and this is Prachi Patel, and we're both rising seniors at Signature School. And today we are super excited because we are back again with Miss Lori Liu. She's a family law attorney who is based in California, and she also has over three decades of experience with domestic violence and abuse through her career. We are super excited to be talking to her today. In the last two podcasts, we discussed domestic abuse and what victims can do to help themselves, what a supporter or friend can do to help the victim, along with an account of a victim who became a survivor of domestic abuse. Today, we will be discussing the bias that male victims face when they come forward with domestic violence. All right, well, let's get started. Thank you so much for talking with us again, Lori. I'm so happy to be here and to discuss some of my experiences and perspectives as a lawyer working in cases that involve domestic violence. One of the things I wanted to talk about was a special class of victims of domestic violence, and those are men. There is gender bias in our society. Very often you hear of gender bias against women or females But in this situation, in domestic violence, there's a gender bias against men. And let me explain why. Most common scenario regarding domestic violence is that the male or the man is the aggressor and the female or the woman or girl is the victim. But there are very real, very awful situations of domestic violence that are perpetrated by women against men. I want to tell you an account of such a story. I had a client come to me and his name is for purposes of this account, John. And he was married to a woman named Jennifer. John and Jennifer were going through a divorce case and unfortunately there were custody issues. We were discussing things that were important that we needed to advise the court as to why one parent should be a custodial parent and why one parent was potentially unfit to be a custodial parent. John said to me, you know, there's been times when she's hit me and she has been very abusive. She's been actually very abusive throughout our marriage. And I said, hmm, okay. In retrospect, I committed gender bias in that conversation. When John told me that he had been abused by Jennifer, I thought that he was reaching or thinking of ideas that we could tell the court. And I didn't take him seriously. Now I have to admit to you, if I had a woman seated across the desk from me and she said, I was 
the victim of domestic abuse for many years during our marriage, my ears would have perked up and I would have said, tell me all about it. But I somewhat poo-pooed John and kind of steered the conversation in a different direction. And we were talking about other things that were relevant for custody. We had another meeting a couple days later and to his credit, John was brave enough, courageous enough, man enough to stand up for himself and say to me again, you know, I really think that the domestic violence and the abuse that Jennifer has committed should be considered by the court. And I said, okay, maybe you should tell me about that. He said, yes, I'll tell you all about it. So he began to tell me stories of different things that happened in his marriage where Jennifer would attack him, punching him in the chest and slapping his face. She even on one occasion punched him with a closed fist. I was stunned when he started to tell me these things. And I asked him, did you hit her back? He said, no, I never raised a hand to her. The most riveting, compelling, and amazing story that he told me went like this. Jennifer and John were at their home and Jennifer had had way too much wine to drink. And they were in the kitchen arguing. And the reason they were arguing was because Jennifer had gone and was screaming at their teenage son. She felt that the teenage son had been too hard on the younger brother. So she was screaming at the teenage son. And John approached her in the kitchen thereafter and said, Jennifer, I think you were too hard on our son. She then got very angry and started yelling at John. While she was yelling at John, she took a knife from the kitchen knife block and she was brandishing it and holding it, I know. She was brandishing the knife and holding it in a threatening and menacing manner as if she was going to stab John. John remained calm and he told her to put the knife down. Jennifer put the knife down and John put it back in the knife block. And things were calming down a little bit. John said to Jennifer, I can't believe that you pulled a knife on me. You know, that's really abusive. Jennifer became angry again and she said, I'm not the one being abusive, you're being abusive. John stared at her in disbelief. John said, for what you did, I could call 911. Jennifer said, oh, you could call 911? I could call 911. 
I think I'm going to call 911. She picked up the phone and dialed 911. And she said, send the police. Here's my address. My husband's abusing me. John stood there in disbelief and shock. She hung up the phone. John didn't know what to say. Then Jennifer walked out of the house down to, she was approaching the driveway as if to wait for the police. Keeping his distance away from Jennifer, John followed her out the door. And when she went down to the end of the driveway, he stood nearby so he could hear what she would tell the police. And he could hear the lies that he believed that she would tell the police, but she wasn't too close to him because he was afraid of her. She stood at the end of the driveway and was looking at him. And she said, get away from me. And he said, I'm standing right here. Then Jennifer started to march back up into the house and John followed her, but not too close. He was afraid she was gonna call the police again and maybe make up lies. He wanted to hear what she was going to say. He wanted to be able to defend himself. As they approached the porch near the front door, she went up the steps to go in the front door and she yelled back at him, get away from me. And he said, I am keeping my distance, but I just want to hear what you're telling the police. Jennifer turned around and directed her body towards him and without any warning, lunged at him and with both hands pushed him on each shoulder back. He fell back and he fell against the railing of the porch. She was screaming at him. He got his balance back and he just stood there. He didn't defend himself or go near her. Then he started to walk sort of sideways to get away from her towards a chair. And Jennifer came at him and she pushed him back again. And then she put her hands on his neck and started to strangle him. He didn't push her body, but he put his hands around her wrists to try to get her hands off of the stranglehold that she had on his neck. And then she released her hands and she went, turned around and went up the stairs and into the front door. He just, you, he then teetered and then he sat down on the bench and he put his hands in his head in disbelief at what was happening. I can give you the description of how it happened because all of this was caught on camera from the front door cameras. So when John told me this story, I didn't believe him or I didn't believe that this was 
actually a victim of domestic violence because this is a man and she's a woman. He was bigger physical, in physical stature than her. But when he started to tell me this story, I almost felt ashamed that I had not probed him to give me the facts as I would have probed a female client. But he gave me the information. And um, by the way, the police did come and they separated the two. And the police did not arrest either person, but the police officer recommended strongly to John that John leave because he did not want, the police officers did not want them there together. They were both making accusations against each other. So it was a good thing that the police officer said that John should leave, but he would have left anyway because he didn't trust her. She had just brandished a knife against him and she tried to strangle him. So she, he was fearful. So he did leave. He hired counsel, as I said, myself. We were able to get papers together, which were extremely strong. And when you submit papers, you can't submit a videotape. You can show a videotape at a trial, but the emergency orders that you get are based on papers. So what we did was we played the videotape on a cell phone and we took screenshot, 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 screenshot. Then in his declaration, he described what happened in chronological order. So for example, he said, and then she pushed me by putting both of her arms on each shoulder, see exhibit A, and then we would have the screenshot of her pushing him, etc. And we had the screenshot of Jennifer strangling John. We had the screenshot of her turning around and him just sitting down and putting his hands in his face in disbelief. So yes, a restraining order was issued against Jennifer. And we must remember that men are special class of victims because of gender bias in our society. So if there are any men out there who are caught in a cycle of domestic abuse, because we know that men and women can become angry and violent and aggressive, and I believe that Jennifer knew full well that gender bias plays a part in protecting her as the aggressor from restraining her against hurting a man who is not your typical victim. And that is why she probably said to him, oh, you're gonna call 911? No. I'm going to call 911. So if there are any men out there, please take care. We hope you get help. And please, let's spread awareness that gender bias should be really eradicated in our society because everybody deserves to be free of domestic violence. Clearly, John was super brave to come forward with this story. Do you think that there are different factors that prevent 
victims from coming forward with their stories um, when it comes to male victims versus female victims. Um, for example, do you think that embarrassment plays more of a role with male victims than female victims? Absolutely. With male victims, I think that there is a certain amount of not only embarrassment, but perhaps shame and or stigma attached to the fact that a man may be a victim of domestic abuse by a woman. And that shame or stigma or embarrassment has had the effect of impeding male victims, male victims um, in general, I believe, from trying to break free of the abuse and also for using the tools that we spoke about earlier. One of the tools that I talked about was confiding in a friend, having somebody be a sounding board to help navigate. Here John was going to confide in me, his attorney, and he had to ask me more than once to listen to him and to hear him out because my gender bias kind of had me turn away from the fact that he could truly be a victim. Thank goodness that he did persist and tell me what he went through. And I think that when victims in general, not just men, but when victims in general have unresolved feelings of pain or sorrow, that can be internalized and that can really lead to much worse emotional problems. So let me give you an example. When my son, who was four years old at the time, was being treated for leukemia, thank goodness he overcame it, he went through three and a half years of very arduous chemotherapy, some of which involved painful injections, spinal taps, and other painful procedures. I remember when we were out of treatment and he got injections and he was tearful and he cried, partly from the anticipation, partly from the pain. The nurse, you know, uh, was very kind to him and said, you know, you did a great job. And then she said, you may, you know, now go to the toy box because you are so, so brave. We want you to get a toy. So he went to the other room to get a toy. And I looked at her with tears in my eyes and I said, it's so hard to see him cry. And she looked at me and she, she said, Hon, I know it's hard to see him cry, but it's the ones who don't cry who we worry about. She said, when there's children who are feeling pain and sorrow and they're not crying, they're not telling us that it hurts. They're not telling us that they hate us. Those are the kids we worry about. 
And ever since then, it resonated with me. If you want to cry, you should cry. If you feel pain, you should cry. And I think victims of domestic abuse, men or women who don't come forward and who do not tell their story and who suffer in silence, those words have been used to talk about victims of violence, people who suffer in silence, that those are the persons who we worry about. Those are the persons who can have worse emotional, very bad emotional ramifications. And I know of a victim of domestic violence who didn't speak up and who suffered in silence and who finally broke free, but it had been so long that this person endured violence that this victim was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And that I think was probably a result of keeping it inside and not getting help. So whether you're a man or a woman, old or young, whatever you are, if you feel the pain in the domestic violence cycle, do what you can to break free. Please do what you can to break free and you'll be able to break free because you can do it. You just have to take it one step at a time and the steps are gonna be hard. And if you think of everything all at once as a big giant mountain that you can't climb, that's gonna be true. You, it will seem impossible, but if you just take it one step at a time, just like the woman in my earlier episode who I talked about who was separated from her children for all those years and she really suffered. She just took it one step at a time. You just have to take it one step at a time. And also like our friend John who really suffered but finally broke free. So I hope you break free. I hope you all take care of yourselves. If you're experiencing any forms of abuse, please do not hesitate to contact the National Domestic Abuse Hotline. The number is 1-800-799-7233. Or if you live near southwestern Indiana, the Albion's Fellow Bacon Center is a center that provides services to victims of all types of abuse. Thank you so much for continuing to tune in with us on the Pinch of Prevention series. We hope that this has helped to illuminate gender bias and how it plays a role in talking about and reporting domestic violence. Stay tuned for more ingredients of change.